Welcome to John Bound Politics number 31. It is the post week of Grammys number 62, and you would have thought that 2020 would have begun with a bang, would have begun with a sense of freshness, of reinvention. But the Grammys were insanely dismal with historical low ratings. Rush's sound checks are better than most of the bands that played on the Grammys. And with the passing of Neil Peart, you would think that the Grammys would recognize the void Neil leaves after being one of the greatest drummers of all time and the visionary lyricist for a band that was a one of a kind. Rush's sales statistics also placed them third behind the Beatles and the Rolling Stones for the most consecutive gold or platinum albums by a rock band. Don't you think there would have been a tribute had Paul McCartney died or Mick Jagger or Keith Richards? All we got was crickets from the exclusive click of the Grammys. No tribute to Neil or Dr. John or Leon Redbone or Dick Dale or Art Neville, Daniel Johnston, Rick Ocasek, just to name a few, ranking Roger. But what we get from the Grammys is more of the celebration of their embarrassing culture, a culture where fat cat record executives have flipped the script on the industry, Sleepy Labeef, rather than being subjected to the whims of true musical genius and the demands of a cast of characters. The modern executive shackles an unsuspecting expecting neophyte to their wheel of sacrifice. Ultimately, the executives are the artists now, dwelling in their hidden realm of Crowley-esque rituals, molding their prey into a commodity of entertainment, controlling the distribution of that commodity, determining if that commodity will be successful in their artificial entertainment prison, and then sacrificing the ones with the limited shelf life and putting the slow drain on someone like Alicia Keys or Ariana Grande who can make their boring songs sound relatively credible and get dubbed legends. If they are legends, does that make Smokey Robinson a mythological beast? Just look at the people at the Grammys. It's a circus. Somewhere in the crowd, there are real musicians. And to legitimize it, they throw us a bone with cameos of John Prine, Bonnie Raitt, and Tanya Tucker, etc. But to bring out Run DMC and Aerosmith to do Walk This Way for the millionth time, when you've got someone like Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi who could have brought the house down by memorializing Kofi Burbridge and Yanrico Scott, or even allow Cage the Elephant, who won Best Rock Album, to actually play. In fact, the audience was loaded with the cream of the crop in world, folk, roots, blues, and jazz music. Why then is the Grammys a spectacle of overrated hacks, having mild seizures into auto-tune? And what the hell happened to Gary Clark Jr.? Gary rose to superstardom on the backs of a host of Austin, Texas musicians that propped him up. But unlike Stevie Ray Vaughan or Jimmy Vaughan, who pulled tons of fellow artists into the spotlight with them, Gary Clark has been given a handful of Grammys for furthering the millennial white man bad conquer and divide insanity. With his song of hate, This Land Is Mine, Gary Clark was spoon-fed his career. He's got nothing to be angry about. If white man is so bad, then why is Doyle Bramhall too struggling to pay his child support while Gary Clark drinks champagne and eats caviar in the back of a limo listening to his songs get airplay and distribution and Doyle doesn't? Doyle can play circles around Gary Clark Jr. and is the heir apparent to a small family of Austin, Texas musicians that have all now been absorbed into Gary Clark Jr.'s ego. Why does any of this matter? Because whether you realize it or not, 
Propaganda isn't just isolated to the news media. It dominates all American media. And the music is far more powerful at carrying that message than all the rest of the media combined. So if anyone out there is wondering what a real Austin musician is like, what follows is an interview I did with Henry and the Invisibles. Henry is a one-man band force of nature. And for the remaining portion of this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, the interview with Henry and the Invisibles. Henry and the Invisibles are a one-man band that have released numerous singles and two groundbreaking albums, 2010's One Man Funk Band and 2016's Mosaic. Back in the day, the 90s, Henry Rowland was fronting the Austin, Texas funk band known as the Gingerbread Men, a band that mined positive energy on a regular basis right here in Austin, Texas. Now, Henry, what was the transition like from that to what you're doing now? Oh, wow. Um, so basically, from Gingerbread Men, I remember we started um, kind of focusing a lot on some some jazz. So uh, the band kind of branched off into um, a smaller ensemble of kind of a funk jazz tip. Um, we basically started a... I think it was around the time when Sam Lippman joined the band. He's a kind of a, a composer around town that was, was really uh, kind of a jazz influence for us back in the day. Um, I wound up actually rooming with him in New York. Uh, he was split in New York, and I thought it was a good time to further my skills <laughs> as um, kind of a jazz guitarist. So from Gingerbread Men, basically we broke off into like a, a uh, smaller ensemble. We call that Concerto Grosso, um, which by definition is like a small ensemble of, of improvisational uh, musicians. And uh, so yeah, I started studying jazz, and, and then I moved to New York. Um, for me, I, I was studying. Um, Taking lessons with lots of lots of greats up there. I took some lessons from Mark Whitfield, Mike Stern, um, and was hanging around the scene quite a bit, um, checking out uh, Hiram Bullock quite often. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I used to jam with Hiram. Um, wow. He used to kind of uh, kick back at this uh, studio on Houston. It was a Mermaid Studios. He had like a little basement um, area that um, there would be a lot of late night jams, you know, four in the morning kind of thing. Oh, yeah. So basically that's kind of where I went for a while. And then while I was there, um, of course, uh, I was I was doing a lot of cafe gigs and smaller trio gigs. And then I kind of um, also was getting a little burnt on just playing some standards and wanted to do something else. And I wanted to get back in the funk. But before that, I uh, experimented a little bit with like a rock trio and that was a band that I fronted. It was basically uh, the rhythm section of a band that I was in 
with a female fronted vocalist. Um, her name is Molly King, and the band was Lotus 33, and it was this kind of just like this kind of psych rock, um, uh, female fronted rock band. And so we were doing a lot of shows with that, and then I branched off um, because I wanted to get more gigs. Um, we branched off the trio and called it Star Child, and that was my project. And that was doing pretty well around the um, Lower East Side, um, East Village, West Village. We were playing all the pubs, and it was pretty cool. Um, but uh, originally, you know, New York had its toll. It was kind of expensive. And also, um, my roots are in Austin, Texas. So I was in New York for almost 10 years. and So that's where you went. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. Um, you know, I I made I made a few records there. I was a studio musician at a place called Threshold Music. Um, so I was getting lots of work through there. I was playing lots of rock bands, mod bands, uh funk bands, jazz bands, learning skills on bass and guitar predominantly and like um it's just a, an experience that I wouldn't trade for the world, but like, you know, eventually it's just New York is kind of beastly in the fact that it's it was so expensive and um I just got kind of burnt out on it having been from Texas. So came back and I brought my rock trio here. So that was kind of what I was doing when I moved back. Uh the bass player had moved from New York and um uh well originally that I met some guys in town, uh, some old friends of mine, some old musician friends that took over the gig and then uh, a bass player eventually from New York moved down. And anyways, as that was going, that was pretty cool, but there were so many problems with, um, with personnel as far as, if you can believe it, in a trio situation. It's a lot of um, instances where it just wasn't, it wasn't clicking as far as um, kind of the direction I wanted to go. And when that band disbanded, um, and I had already gone through three bassists for the for the gig. Um, I kind of decided to myself. Oh, well, here's an interesting story. That band got a sponsorship from Sam Ash Music, which which was pretty cool. And yeah, we were we were kind of Electric around. Avenue over there on Electric Avenue. Yeah, so we basically were getting. Um, I think it was like $500 a month to spend at their store. And one of the months we, we would, we would pass it around since it was a trio. We figured each one of us would have four months out of the year. And one of the months that it came to my side of the yard, I basically uh, got myself a looper. It was a very basic loop pedal. Now what, what year was this? What time are we talking here? This is, this is probably like 2000 and, 2007. Okay, so it was this Digitech or was it? Uh, I'm trying to think. Actually, of, yeah, yeah. Actually, the first one was it was yeah. a Jamman. Right, it's like a right. real basic, right, real basic pedal, just one loop, one loft, you know, just like, <laughs> and um, it sat uh, in my apartment for uh, for about a year before I even really opened the box. It was something that. <laughs> I, I'd always been fascinated about, but yeah. you know, I I never really thought. And really, originally, I bought it just to like loop some vocals or maybe a vocal harm. I mean, a guitar right. harmony. Right, right. 
but when the band disbanded, uh, I decided to kind of uh, try a project that was was really inspired by what uh, Keller Williams was doing at the time with looping, mm-hmm. um, because you know he was playing in theater situations and and uh, headlining some festivals, and I was thinking how incredible that that was because right. you know he played he played some guitar and let me can i can i interject and ask you if you'd ever seen les paul play because he i think he was the first one to do it had you ever seen the footage of him he had attached a uh, multi-track to his guitar and was was actually looping um, yeah i saw some i saw something like that on youtube um but it wasn't until like much later right okay. that I guess I started digging in the loopers I hadn't I hadn't seen that first um I think at this point though I've seen a lot of like pretty much if you're looping out there I'm I'm probably have seen it because I've just investigated like tons and tons of cats out there even if they're just beginning but like yeah but back but back then that was kind of the name that really stood out to me and um you know, and then of course there were others that were doing it. Uh, Kid Beyond, I think, uh, was, uh, Eric Driscoll or uh, jo- Joey Driscoll, and um, some names that stuck out to me. But like, so I thought to myself, this would be a great opportunity to really pull this pedal out and see what I could do. And you know, I got to be honest with you, the first gig I did was 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 not so great. It was like basically me just you know, I had a few gigs still booked from my trio and I convinced each of the talent buyers for each of the venues. Uh, There was a place in Corpus. It was Docky Rockets back back then. My buddy Squiz was booking that place. And um, there were places in San Antonio that I I had booked and a place in Austin. Um, And I called all the talent buyers and basically convinced them that this was my new project. And uh, the first couple shows are pretty rough. Um, it's you know, an instrument I, in itself. I mean, the the looper is, and you're a ma- you're a kung fu master of it. And you know, I, <laughs> I I have one myself, and it really, it you got to hit everything perfectly. I don't know. Maybe you have some advice on that. I'm sure you've got tons. But uh, in the beginning, it's it's like, man, how am I going to make this work? And then of course you got to figure out all the uh, inputs coming in and how you're going to, you know, run the way it runs through. I'm sure you've simplified everything and gotten to know it. Which kind of, what kind of looper are you using now? How do you loop now? So, so now I I use a multiple, um, a a few different loopers at a live scenario. So I've, I've got the RC 300, uh, or I'm sorry, the RC 30, I believe it is. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, the 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 boss rolling kind of pedal and um, that has three separate loopers, right? And um, um, the uh, the way that the way that kind of opened doors was basically you know now instead of just one patch where you put a loop and you can take it off. Um, now I can simultaneously create loops that create more of like an AB or, you know, AB situation in the song, even, even like a, a bridge. Yeah. And, um, which, which is more musical because the one thing that I think 
the biggest challenge in the beginning was to create a loop that wasn't this like hypnotic drone that like just went on and on forever that kind of, you know, it, it, I find those kinds of loops like just. Well, uh, you, you've always been a great songwriter. I mean, from all the way back, you know, and I don't mean that lightly. Your songs, you do write songs that should be on the, you know, we can go into, that's a whole left field conversation, but the radio is not friendly to artists nowadays. <laughs> and, and and so I mean you've written so many songs with such great hooks, even you know the stuff you did with the Gingerbread Man uh, that should have been played. But now, especially now, I mean you're writing stuff that I, I I personally can't find a bad song, a song that I and I'll be blatantly honest with you, a song where I feel like ah you know I can kind of do without that one, you know. You're, you're I, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to blow you up here, but I mean, it's it's every song, and there's not only that. As a musician, myself being a musician, the influences are all there, and they're so subtle. You grab from so many places, and you expand. Well, I appreciate them. You that. expand on what those people have done. Uh, so yeah, I would imagine that you would require a looper that can give you an A, B, and a bridge for sure. Well, first of all, thanks. I appreciate that a lot. None of it means a lot for you to listen to it. Yeah, so that was basically like the scenario I was in. I just wanted more of like a like a songwriting challenge. I wanted to really push the envelope because um, I enjoyed the challenge, but like like you said, like I just don't want to, you know, put out like you know, I'm not. I certainly am not uh, talking negatively on, on anybody's stuff. But I have been to shows where like somebody would pull out a loop pedal, and it just makes you want to leave the room because. It just keeps going on and on right. and on, and that's that's something I did not want to do. I wanted to kind of like push the uh, the envelope for the for the looper, and so when I got this one, it was it was it was totally cool. And then my world definitely changed when I jumped into the machine, um, which also loops. It, it has a looping capability, um, uh, which is basically like the drum pad, the sixteen pad, the MPC, if you will, and that kind of opened a lot of different sounds and a lot of different uh, ways to play drums 
because one of the things I'm sure you probably know, having had a looper, some of these loopers come with like drum patterns and they're pretty hokey. And there was no way that I was going to do that live scenario since I'm friends with like some of the best drummers. (laughs) I didn't want any of that like to be in my set. So I had to figure out a way to do the drums and like going back to the first show, like I used a, just a giant water jug for for my drums so like it's got a lot of tones on it. it's got like the bass and the slap for a more of a snare sound and so i was using a water jug a bass and an acoustic guitar that was my first day wow and then and then i realized that i wanted to get back to the electric guitar so i was lugging around a 1969 bassman and basically plugging plugging in my bass and guitar simultaneously and trying to do drums with my mouth on a microphone. Yeah. And so that was cool, but it was feeling like, uh, this could definitely, uh, you know, uh, I, if I could modernize this, <laughs> it would be great. Cause I don't want to be, you know, literally dragging around this old vintage amp everywhere. And, um, so eventually it just got into, I started thinking, how am I going to get some electronic drums? Uh, into the mix, and then that's when I started really exploring the capabilities of MPC um, uh, options, and I came up with a machine that basically now I've got a MIDI controller with a keyboard, and uh, that has just changed. So the way I've got an MPC set up is it's got eight different uh, groups, if you will. Well, actually, right. it's got many, many more, but I set up like groups for shows, and then. I've got all these drum kits and different organ sounds and key sounds and effects and samples and uh, those kinds of things plugged into this thing. And then I play the thing like an instrument because I don't, I don't really want to just press play on these things. There are a few songs that are more modern where I'll have like a basic, basic loop running just so as uh, I can like um, more seamlessly mix my set but for the most part it's pretty much all live like i don't i don't really mess around too much with a bunch of pre-recorded stuff yeah I, um, well i think that would be boring for you you know because you're a player at heart right i mean that yeah that and i i just don't want to be pegged as like a dj or you know somebody who's just kind of just like skimming by for a life well it, it's amazing though you look around and and uh you know you go to acl or or coachella's real big on this and they have the the one dj up there spinning and they've got this huge elaborate stage show and you know a hundred thousand people in the crowd and they're just losing their minds out there at three in the morning you know and you've you're you're actually the real deal on that and and, and well, it's, it's hard it's hard for people uh to understand um just i don't know maybe people understand but but to the amount of talent that it takes to be able to play the bass lines that you're playing the to play the guitar lines that you're playing i mean you you have this one solo that's straight up george benson uh <laughs> i mean and, and it's it's right up there with it Uh, the way that you you sing 
the influences in your voice. Uh, there's a whole range. Uh, your keyboard playing, you know, it, it's that's not um, plug and play. That's real talent, you know. And and uh, I just it, that's what amazes me and amazes everybody that listens to you. Well, thank you so much. Um, I um, you know, I have a lot of respect for those DJs though as well. I mean, because. I, I understand what it takes to um, produce something that actually gets them to that stage. You know what I mean? It's like sure, sure, if they're sure. playing for, if they're if they're playing for seventy thousand people, um, they have spent countless hours in the studio. So I can respect that too. But as far as what I'm doing, it is definitely more of a live scenario, and I feel pretty fortunate to have been like invited to more of those EDM festivals and stuff, just because I'm kind of like the I'm kind of like the crossover from like live into digital or whatever. So that kind of stuff is something that, you know. Yeah, I, I, did, I, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to diss people for that. I mean, I, I appreciate and respect, oh, yeah, no. respect all music, but yeah. people are used to now seeing that one guy up there. You know what I mean? And yeah, and you're actually, you are that one guy, but it's all real. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it is funny though, because you said some people, you think most people know and i would say probably a lot of people understand what's going on but i still from time to time and it's usually when i'm doing more of like a corporate event or something but somebody somebody will come up to me and and ask for like the latest top 40 song you know because they they seriously i guess don't understand that it's a live (laughs) original set they think i'm like djing or something yeah i think that you know i think um I guess that just comes from like, um, you know, people seeing live music or, or whatever their background is. But anyway, sure. yeah. So, so that's something that, that just basically when I started doing it, um, it just grew, it evolved. And I, I would say that what I found myself doing is there was a venue in San Antonio on Broadway street called the rebar, which is basically my whiskey go-go. Right. Your home um, base. Yeah, and I was living in San Antonio at the time because um, my father was living there and um, um, I was kind of like just honing the craft because I played there every Friday for six years. Um, And the set was about a four hour long set. Um, And they told me that I could take breaks, but I rarely did uh, because I just enjoyed like the process is like writing songs. I mean, I, I, I wrote so many songs almost on the spot, just ideas. Yeah. And then I would, I would watch how the crowd would react. And if they reacted well, then I would bring it back. And if, if they didn't, then I would probably just toss it. And that's a laboratory. So, that is a laboratory. It was extremely educational. I mean, I, you know, it was something that is invaluable. And I think that, a lot of bands up and coming uh, spend a lot of time in their garages or in their bedrooms or whatever. And I think that it's important to get yourself onto like a, like a real raw live scenario. But that said though, I love jamming with artists and, and musicians and really in the, in the near future, I'm going to be doing some collaborations. You know, I, I, I love playing with artists, but as far as me in the studio, doing my own thing, touring, everything, I'm glad. I'm glad where I'm at. And 
don't think I'm going to um, focus on trying to put together another band for the rest of my career as far as this goes. You can find Henry and the Invisibles at henryinvisible.com. And he's also on Spotify. And tell your friends. You can find these podcasts at John Baum Politics on YouTube and at dailynewscollective.com. <laughs>